0: W-H-Y-Y in Philadelphia, this is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Dave Davies, in for Terry Gross. Today, what does a great conductor listen to when he's not listening to classical music? Yannick nezet Segan, who leads the Philadelphia Orchestra and the Metropolitan Opera, shares a playlist of music that inspires him. Some of his selections are classical, many are not.
1: I like it, I like it. I think, you know, from a Nas X to,
0: to Bruckner, We'll listen to the music Yannick chose and talk about what it means to him. Also, we'll hear from costume designer Ruth E. Carter. She's the first Black American to win an Academy Award for costume design for Black Panther and has been nominated again for the sequel Wakanda Forever. Carter got her start in Spike Lee's 1988 film School Days.
2: That shaped who I am today. I don't know what it did for Spike, but I know what it did for me.
0: That's coming up on Fresh Air Weekend. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Dave Davies, in for Cherry Gross. Cherry has today's first interview. I'll let her introduce it.
3: My guest, Yannick Naze Sagan, won two Grammys this month. He's the music and artistic director and conductor of the Philadelphia Orchestra and the music director and conductor of the Metropolitan Opera. He also continues to lead the Orchestra Metropolitan in Montreal, where he's from. One Grammy was for the Met's recording of the new Terence Blanchard Opera, Fire Shut Up in My Bones, which made history as the first opera by a black composer to be presented by the Met. The other Grammy was for Best Classical Vocal Performance, featuring duets with opera star Renee Fleming and Yannick at the piano. Last year, he won a Grammy with the Philadelphia Orchestra for a recording of two symphonies by composer Florence Price. In 1933, she became the first black woman to have her music played by a major American orchestra. Last week, the mayor of Philadelphia presented a declaration commemorating Philly Loves Yannick Week in celebration of him extending his contract with the Philadelphia Orchestra for four more years. He is not only a great conductor, he has a gift for explaining what's technically happening in music that translates into deep emotions. So I'm happy to say he's made a playlist for us of music he loves that's inspired him. It includes pop music as well as classical, and of course, I'll be asking him to talk about each passage that he features from that list of recordings. Yannick, welcome back to Fresh Air. It is so great to have you back on our show. Congratulations on the Grammys. Congratulations and thank you for re-upping on that contract.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Terry. It's such a pleasure to talk to you again.
3: So since the Grammys were so recent and you, you just won two of them, Let's start with the Grammys, but before we get to your Grammy, let's hear a song from your playlist that was part of the Big Grammy News. It's a song from Beyoncé's album Renaissance, which won four Grammys, enabling Beyoncé to break the career record for the most Grammy wins of all time. She is beloved, but I wonder if you, as the conductor of the Philly Orchestra and the Metropolitan Opera, hear things in her music that most of us probably don't. Um, So tell us why you love the track that you chose, which is called Cozy. Or tell us about why you love the whole album Renaissance and what you hear that maybe we don't.
1: Well, it's probably not a surprise if I'm telling you that I listen to pop music much the same way. I can't help it. I hear harmonies. I hear details of instrumentation and mixing. And... Because I love also operas, as you know, and I love long symphonies, I I love an album as a concept of something that I like that it's from start to finish, it's not only a good song, but as a whole, it's greater than the sum of its parts. And I felt this way with Renaissance by Beyoncé. I always liked her music, and I liked very much Lemonade a few years ago, uh, also because there was a concept behind it. Now, it was difficult to choose just one song out of the album, but I also like the messaging of the album, and I think that cozy at this moment is is a great message that talks first to women in general and empowers women and empowers all of us quite frankly um, regardless of gender in also have feelings that we it's self-love but it's also about mental health and I think self-love is the starting point of mental health and um you know, to be able to, to have this point across while still being able to make us dance and have a catchy melody, uh, I think, you know, that's just a mark of, you know, what makes g- pop music great when it's great.
3: All right, with that, let's hear Beyoncé's Cozy from her latest album, Renaissance.
4: I've been thick, been fine Still tears, still here That's all me Black like love 2D Dance to the soles of my feet Green eyes envy me Paint the world Think mm-hmm. blue like the soul I crowned Purple drink and culture gowns Gold fangs and shade God made Blue, black, white and round Paint the town red like cinnamon Yellow diamonds, limoncello, glycerin Rainbow gelato in the streets Renaissance yachting not mess with
3: my sis. So that's Cozy, one of the songs on the playlist that conductor Yannick Nazis again has brought with him today. And he's the conductor of the Philadelphia Orchestra and the Metropolitan Opera. You know, you said one of the things you love about um, the whole album, Renaissance, is that it has a, a concept. I not want to read her dedication for the album. It's dedicated in part to her Uncle Johnny, who was gay and died of AIDS-related causes, I think toward the beginning of her career. And she wrote, he was my godmother and the first person to expose me to a lot of the music and culture that serve as inspiration for this album. Thank you to all of the pioneers who originate culture, to all of the fallen angels whose contributions have gone unrecognized for far too long. This is a celebration for you. And so it's, it's really a celebration of, like, dance music and mu- music that became popular in, in gay clubs during the AIDS epidemic and after. Um, so what do you relate to about that concept of the album?
1: Mm. You know, at the Grammys, she, uh, as you know, also um, in her speech thanked the queer community um, in general. And there was something about um, giving space, giving the voice to a certain community while herself not necessarily belonging to. I relate to this also, um, well, obviously, myself as a gay man that uh, that really is close to home. But also, I I think always of better ways of being a leader, what it means uh, in classical music in my field. How can I be a better leader? And especially in most recent years, but I think all through my career, but I take it even more at a full speed recently, I think I want to be the leader who makes space for others and other communities to, uh, to shine and to... Um, to be rediscovered and to to have their own space. And that's really what I've been doing, whether at the Philadelphia Orchestra, at the Met, and even at Orchestre Métropolitain, um, shining a light on on other um, communities and artists. And I, I believe when, uh, you know, Beyoncé, she's at the top of the world at the moment. And she's been for a while and she's using this to raise awareness to other people, and I, of course, respect and admire, and th- that's something that really resonates deeply with me.
3: So, one more thing about this album, which is, you know, inspired by dance music um, and is dance music. You told me once that when you were ten, that's that's when you realized you wanted to conduct. But you you just thought of the visual part of the conductor on the podium, <laughs> kind of dancing as the conductor you know, does his thing. Um, so do you love to dance? And did you go clubbing a lot in your earlier years? Or were you too busy, like, practicing? So
1: here's the secret, dear Terry. I, on the dance floor, I'm hopeless. <laughs> and it's funny because it's true. I can't deny that on the podium, I have kind of a balletic ap- approach. And I do feel the music in my body, including my lower body, which is, you know, basically (laughs) where dance is happening. And I conceive music always with dance, whether even it's Baroque or the slowest part for me. I conceive music as primarily dance moves. It's The rhythm is the most important thing in music. And even when I conduct some Baroque music like Bach or something that people think is very serious or very slow, I always try to remember that quintessentially this is a dance. But if you take me out of that context, (laughs) I I need quite a few drinks before I'm at ease on the dance floor. But my husband, Pierre, is the best dancer ever ever. He can dance any kind of dance, and he went clubbing a lot in his youth, and I did not. And when we started being together, I asked him to teach me to dance because I didn't want to, uh, I don't know, I didn't want to embarrass him. And those dance lessons um, never really happened because he would laugh (laughs) so hard at me. So um, it's interesting how I try to make up for it on the podium, (laughs) but...
3: Um, So you won two Grammys this year. Let's hear music from one of them. And this is duets with with you at the piano and opera star Renee Fleming singing. The album is called Voice of Nature Anthropocene and won for best vocal performance. So this is on your playlist. And I assume you chose this because you find Renee Fleming inspiring. What makes her voice and her acting in operas so special?
1: We're talking with Renée Fleming, legend. She is larger than life. And I mean, I don't want to embarrass her by saying that, but I told her, you know, one of the first recordings I bought as a CD was her Schubert um, set of songs with Christoph Eschenbach, former music director of the Philadelphia Orchestra, as it happens, but on the piano. And... I remember buying this for a Christmas present to my mother. And when Renée, many decades later, uh, after we collaborated on stage many times in opera and in symphonic, she was my first soloist here in Philadelphia uh, for my first opening night back in 2012. But when she called me during the pandemic and said, look, Yannick, we should make a recital together at the piano, I, I could not believe it because I never saw myself as a pianist that could make it at the piano to the top like this. You know, for me, I'm primarily a conductor. And to have the opportunity, I couldn't say no to that. And this became a project that we became so dear to both of us. And one of the my favorite songs that I dreamed of playing, especially with a voice like Rene's, is this Greek song, Sum Rosenheit, and that's why I chose it.
3: So this is from the album Voice of Nature, Anthropocene, and Anthropocene is the era we're in now where humans are the determining factor in climate change and environmental changes. So let's hear a track from this Grammy Award-winning album with my guest Yannick Nizé-Ségan at the piano and Renee Fleming singing. And this is a piece by Grieg called "Tsor Rosenzweig. That was a track from Voice of Nature Anthropocene, the new Grammy Award-winning album with singer Renee Fleming, and my guest, Yannick Nazae Sagan at the piano. He's the conductor of the Philadelphia Orchestra and the Metropolitan Opera. We need to take a short break here. If you're just joining us, my guest is Yannick Nazae Sagan, conductor of the Philadelphia Orchestra and the Metropolitan Opera. We'll hear more music from the playlist he's put together for us after a break. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend.
0: Let's get back to Terry's interview with Yannick Nézé-Séguin, the music and artistic director and primary conductor of the Philadelphia Orchestra and the music director and primary conductor of the Metropolitan Opera. Yannick has put together a playlist for us of music he loves. So
3: let's change it up a little bit. Up next from your playlist is Lil Nas X's recording Montero, (laughs) Montero, Call Me By Your Name. And he, he of course, became famous for um, combining hip-hop and country in his first recording, Old Town Road. And he's also kind of famous for being being gay and very out in the hip-hop world. And his clothes are like wild costumes, sometimes sexually ambiguous costumes. Um, So you chose the song Montero, Call Me By Your Name. His birth name is Montero. So tell us why you love this song and why you've chosen it on your playlist.
1: I think I just love the person or the persona of Lil Nas X. For me, it's inspiring to see that in a field where it was still quiet and repressed and not accepted to be anything but this kind of um, a certain way of seeing masculinity, um, that he can... Be so successful by being so upfront, you know, without shame, being who who he wants to be. And okay, parallels is, are always a little, you know, rocky. It's not uh, exactly the same, but I'm still one of the very few out gay conductors out there, and I think it's about time that. These symbolic figures like Lil Nassex, it's only this way that we're going to have young people uh, really embrace, embrace it and probably understand or make decision makers maybe understand that they should stop saying to everyone, oh, if you're outing yourself, you're going to have your fan base reduced and everything like this. I, I think it's insane. There's so many young people at the moment who are in desperate need. They feel ashamed of being who they want to be. And there's problems with suicide and still so many issues. And I'm that's why I want to be more out and about about it because I want to be an example that, yes, we can make it to the top by being who we want to be and we should love whoever we want to love. And I feel like this is, in his own way, what Montero, <laughs> Lil Nas X, is doing.
3: Well, let's hear it. This is Lil Nas X, Montero.
4: I caught it bad just today. You hear me with a card to your place. Been out in a while anyway. Was hoping I could catch you, throwing smiles in my face. Romantic talking, you don't even have to try. You cute enough to f with me tonight. Looking at the table and I see the reason why. Baby, you live in the life, but baby, you ain't living right. Champagne and drinking with your friends. You live in a dark boy, I cannot pretend. I'm not faced over here to sin If you've been in your garden, you know that you can Call me when you want, call me when you need Call me in the morning, I'll be on the Times. every time that I speak, a, and a nine, it was mine every week. What a time and it I was shining on me. Now I can't leave,
3: that was Lil Nas X doing Montero, and it's one of the songs on the playlist that. Yannick Naze Sagan has put together for us. He's the conductor of the Philadelphia Orchestra, who has just thankfully extended his contract. And he's also the conductor of the Metropolitan Opera. Uh, You've seen the video for this, right? (laughs) <laughs> yes, I did. So the video has a lot of biblical imagery, like satanic imagery, which probably a lot of people would find sacrilegious. Also a lot of phallic imagery. <laughs> He's riding a stripper pole to hell. He gives a lap dance to Satan. And as I said, there's like lots of phallic imagery in it. You grew up very Catholic. <laughs> um, and, and, I like your
1: segue here. <laughs> yes. Right. And,
3: and, and I think now you call your religion uh, music. But would you have found this offensive when you were – in your early teens?
1: Mm. You know, the concept of offensive is um, maybe something I didn't grow up so much with. I believe, even though my parents and my family are are still very religious and we believe in God and, yes, our our religion is Catholic, um, it's not about being shocked by things and... Um therefore, I don't think even back then it would have been offensive. I'm not sure my parents would have left me <laughs> watching it that much, you know, at a certain age, which that's fine. That's another, you know, that's another discussion, uh, which is a good one.
3: Something else on your playlist is music from Debussy's The Little Shepherd. And I know you like to play Debussy for your cats. Is this one of your cats' favorites?
1: Definitely. (laughs) (laughs) I have one of my cats who is, they're both very musical. Um, Oh, you're the
3: father. Of course you think that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I swear, I swear. They're the most musical. I have one who has the perfect voice. He's called Rodolfo. So like uh, the hero in Puccini, La Boheme, he's a great tenor. He has the perfect voice, but his ears are so sensitive that when I play piano, he loves it. But he usually has to go in another room because it's too loud. (laughs) But when I play this piece, it's so soft and gentle, he stays Around. And Rafa, on the other hand, doesn't have any voice. He's playing tennis, doesn't sing, but he loves music, and the louder the better. We had friends the other day coming to rehearsed chamber music at home with the piano and with some strings he just stayed the whole time and sat on each and everyone's lap and just he, he still, he, he asked daily when are the friends coming to make the concert again <laughs> so um, they're both musical, I'm telling you
3: Is it true that you leave music on even when you're not home when nobody saw them for your cats?
1: It's very important <laughs> it's, yeah but, but they are, I, I realized when we started doing this that they were more calm, they were more happy, they're actually more fulfilled and less stressed than someone or stressed or bored.
3: So this is music by Debussy. Debussy is one of the French Impressionist composers. What does that mean?
1: Painting in music. That's what it means. It means having a story and instead of being completely real, it's all about poetic colors and something that makes us immediately between the reality and the dream. And that's what Debussy uh, does to me.
3: Why do you choose this piece, uh, an excerpt of The Little Shepherd?
1: So this is from a um, set of pieces called Children's Corner by Debussy. So as you can probably guess, I played this piece when I was very young. And when I arrived with uh, my second piano teacher at the Montreal Conservatory, I played her the whole suite of Children's Corner, and she liked especially my Little Shepherd interpretation. So even years later, when I was not a child anymore, she would ask after group classes, she would say at the end, Yannick, why don't you, to finish as a dessert, why don't you play the Little Shepherd, please? Um, I don't know. She was v- particularly attached to that piece and with me playing it. So it's it, it stayed with me. And when I play it, I, I think of her.
3: So this is The Little Shepherd from Debussy's sweet Children's Corner, performed by Yannick Nizé segan from his 2021 album, Introspection, Solo Piano Sessions. So that was The Little Shepherd from Debussy's Sweet Children's Corner, performed by Yannick Nizé-Ségan from his 2021 album, Introspection Solo Piano Sessions. And Yannick is at the piano on that, of course. And he is our guest today. And he's put together a playlist of music that's inspired him, music he loves, and Debussy is on that list. I have to say, one of the songs on the playlist that surprised me most, the playlist you put together of songs that inspire you, is Olivia Newton John's song physical? So <laughs> I have to ask you, what is that doing on your playlist? <laughs> Olivia Newton
1: John was my first crush. Really? You know, oh, okay. oh boy, I loved her. And I'm so sad she passed away now a few months ago. And after being a, a, a very courageous, I think. Um, an outspoken, you know, the uh, journey through cancer and um, Olivia Newton-John. I, I think I was aware, as many kids my age then, uh, because she played on *Grease* the movie, and that song, "Physical." I, I don't know. I couldn't stop listening to it when I was a kid, and I think my older sisters, my two sisters, Sylviane and Isabelle, who are uh, five and six years older than me they would put that song and ask me to dance on it or something like that, move on it at least. And um, it stayed with me. And recently I watched the video again and saw all the gay imagery (laughs) that goes with it and in many ways think that maybe there was something that I did not understand at the time which actually stayed with me. And... It's also, I think, a very entertaining and very uh, energetic music that's um, inspiring for all the more physical side of my life now where I go to the gym and I try to stay in shape to make sure that I um, I, I don't get injured when I conduct. So it's all this put together that really inspired me to put it on the playlist.
3: Great setup. Let's hear it. Newton John's hit Physical from 1981, one of those songs on the playlist put together for us by Yannick nize Sagan of music that he loves, music that's inspired him. And he is, of course, the conductor of the Philadelphia Orchestra and the Metropolitan Opera. Yannick, thank you so much for coming back to our show and for putting together this playlist with us and talking to us about the music. And thank you for extending your contract with the Philadelphia Orchestra. Thank you for conducting the Met. Um, It's just been a pleasure to talk with you again.
1: Terry, you're the best. Thank
0: you so much. It's an honor always to come to your show. Yannick Nezés again is the conductor of the Philadelphia Orchestra and the Metropolitan Opera. He spoke with Terry Gross. Coming up, costume designer Ruth E. Carter. She won an Oscar for Black Panther and has been nominated again for the sequel Wakanda Forever. This is Fresh Air Weekend. Ruth E. Carter, the first Black American to win an Academy Award for Costume Design for Black Panther, has been nominated again for the sequel Wakanda Forever. This is Carter's fourth Oscar nomination, marking a 30-year career with more than 60 film and television credits. She's responsible for the clothing aesthetic of many of Spike Lee's films, including Do the Right Thing and Malcolm X. Some of her other works include The Butler, Selma, and Amistad. She even worked on the Seinfeld pilot. Ruth E. Carter recently spoke with our guest interviewer, Tanya Mosley, host of the podcast Truth Be Told.
5: Over the past 30 years, Ruth E. Carter has produced some of the most iconic looks in the black film canon and beyond. She's known for conducting extensive research to create costumes that help bring characters, scenes and storylines to life. Her latest work, Black Panther Wakanda Forever, starts with a funeral in the fictitious world of Wakanda. Beloved King T'Challa, played by Chadwick Boseman, has died. The actor passed away in real life from colon cancer in 2020 at the age of 43. In the movie, hundreds of mourners line the streets to watch the funeral procession. They're draped in white, each tribe distinguished by intricate beadwork, fur, turbans, and other adornments. Carter's attention to detail and her mastery of historically accurate looks has earned her several awards, including an Oscar and several Critics' Choice Awards, and the Career Achievement Award from the Costume Designers Guild. Ruth E. Carter, welcome to Fresh Air and congrats on your latest Academy Award nomination.
2: Oh, thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be here.
5: Were you a Marvel Universe fan in that storyline before taking on the Black Panther movies?
2: I wasn't. I can't say that I really was. Um, I really love movies and I love um, black history and um, I love telling stories of people and the history of, you know, black America is something that I have been close to for a long time and um, really felt like that was, you know, my part in this whole uh, filmmaking um scenario, and that's what I really enjoyed, you know, and I did Malcolm X and telling his story. I really loved the research process and and doing that. So once Marvel came into my world, I really wasn't even sure about, you know, how what I did and what I loved would actually affect uh, this type of genre. Um, until I met Ryan Coogler and, and was introduced to the world of Wakanda. You
5: had a lot to consider entering this Marvel universe. There's the original comic book series, coupled with conceptualizing what people from a fictional African nation that's never been colonized might wear, and this meant digging into the history and culture of real African nations. You were basically creating magical realism, but were you ever concerned about the blending of so many African cultures?
2: Of course. I think where we went wrong for um, so long was that we thought of Africa as one monolithic place, one look and one one way of thinking about Africa. And uh, when we got together on the first Black Panther, um, we were sure that we were going to dissect the tribes and use some of the traditional practices of, you know, creating some of these costumes to make them feel more authentic to each region around the continent. I mean, there's thousands of tribes throughout the continent of Africa, and we picked eight or 12 of them to represent the tribes of Wakanda. And so it was very important that we uh, showed a delineation. And also, if we were to blend a few um, traditional custom uh, indigenous looks um, that we were intentional with it. So, like the Dora Milaje, you can travel around the whole continent of Africa in the one costume. You know, there's the Turkana beads and the and the Himba leather and the Maasai color and the Ndebele rings. Um, and there are other other forms of that as well. Creating a world that has never experienced
5: colonization. How did you? I guess for lack of a better term how did you decolonize your own mind to come up with the concepts along with the research was there a process you personally had to go through
2: I did because when we started this out in BP1 many people didn't really have a reference for what royalty in Africa looked like and um, uh, and all we had really was, you know, Coming to America or The Lion King. And those are great projects, a great film. But I knew we were doing something different. And so it was important that I have a roadmap for all to see, for all to study um, in the office where we created um, lots of mood boards that showed you the different indigenous tribes and what that looked like. What modernization would look like? What technology would look like? Um, there was also, you know, a wonderful document that Hannah Beekler, the production designer, put together that we used like a bible when we wanted to look up, you know, the business district of Wakanda. There was text and and some images of, you know, what it was and um, you know what it meant.
5: I want to go back with you to the beginning of your costume design career, and I want to start with Spike Lee. Uh, You and Spike have worked together on close to a dozen films starting in 1988 with School Days, his second film. When you two met, you were doing costume design for a local theater show in Los Angeles, and you weren't even considering film as an option. What was it about a young Spike Lee's vision that captured your attention?
2: I felt like I had been trained um, after I graduated from Hampton University in Virginia and I went on to do internships in theater and opera and I drove my little Volkswagen Rabbit across country to Los Angeles where I was going to pursue theater, uh, which there was less theater here than there was film. And when I was approached to work with Spike, uh, he invited me to see She's Gotta Have It. Uh, It hadn't gone to the Cannes Film Festival. He was screening it around Los Angeles. And I kept missing um, the date. And he would send me a little postcard saying, you know, what up, you know, missed you at the screening. And I'd go, darn it, you know, because I was working in theater, you know, through the night, you know, I would uh, work in the costume shop during the day. And then I was a part of the running crew uh, for the theater's plays in the evening. And I really enjoyed it because I enjoyed um, hanging out with the actors and, you know, the whole process, the whole magic of theater. I really did love it. And so I finally did get to a screening, and I remember seeing Nola Darling walking down um, the street in Fulton Mall in Brooklyn, and I thought to myself, here I had been doing Vanya and Shakespeare and the English Cat and opera, and this seemed so, so small. Um, I soon found out it was anything but small that I had to learn how to uh, look at things in close up and in detail and tell the story in a different way through film. Um, But School Days uh, came and and it was a perfect first film for me because it was a bit theatrical and it did deal with a story that I knew, which was the HBCU experience. Right. And so Spike called you up and said, hey, I want you to
5: costume design for school days. You were in theater, so you had never designed for a film, but you said yes. And you went to your brother, Robert, who's also an artist, for advice on how to get started. And what did he tell you?
2: Oh, it was a great time. Uh, my brother invited me to a studio in New Hampshire where he lived, he worked for IBM during the day, but he's a great painter. He's always been a great painter, um, and so he had a big studio in the basement of his house. And I had the script with me. Um, he had an IBM computer next to his big drafting table, and and he said, 1st you've got to, you know, learn how to do a budget." For all these characters, you know, and he sat me at his computer and we figured out how to present a budget for all the characters. And and then I began to um, sketch all the characters that we listed. And one of the things he told me was, you know, get those ideas out of your head create a series of folders with all your characters' names on them. And and uh, every time you get an idea, you know, either write it down or if you see something in a magazine, tear it out. Whatever it is, populate your folders with your ideas so you can open your mind to receiving more new, fresh ones. Mm-hmm. And um, that was one of the um, things he was telling me as well. In between me making him a rum and coke, you know, and... Uh, He'd sit in his big chair while I sat at his drafting table and sketched. And uh, after I had all of my sketches done, um, I called Spike, who was in um, New York, in Brooklyn, and Spike invited me to uh, his apartment to show him all of the costumes. And so I got directions from Spike to his house, which was, you know, take the A train, get in the back of the train, switch to the number two, you know, get off at this stop. And uh, and I did everything he told me. And I ended up in his uh, little basement apartment in Brooklyn. And I had a whole display in front of him of the costume design for school days.
5: Mm-hmm. Spike Lee's. 1989 film, Do the Right Thing, takes place on the hottest day of the year in the Bed-Stuy neighborhood of Brooklyn. And Spike Lee has said that he wanted the look to to be bright, almost blinding, Afrocentric bright. Was that enough to get you to understand his request right away? What was the process of getting there?
2: Well, we were an independent film. We were low budget, we had to make it work with uh, product placement so, Nike was a big uh, factor in they gave us so many sneakers and compression shorts and tank tops and stuff like that, but it was all very saturated color and we were representing the hottest day of the year. Um, we were representing a neighborhood in Bed-Stuy that I actually lived in while we were shooting. and. I didn't see that same vibrancy every day. I did see color, of course. You know, Brooklyn is the epitome of the African diaspora where you see gay lays and women uh, from Africa in their traditional garb. I think that's probably the first place I've I experienced it as a kid going up to New York, seeing it, you know, in Brooklyn or in Harlem. But because I had to balance what i was given from these uh, you know athletic companies with our bed i had to be clever in that the african fabrics balanced out the athletic fabric so we made a lot of crop tops and shorts in you know ankara fabrics and it did create this vibrant tableau of this neighborhood. It also, uh, the saturation of color created like the heat of the night, the heat of the day, and and also that the protest was amongst the youth in the neighborhood. And um, when you think of Do the Right Thing, you really do think of a neighborhood that's vibrant and thriving, and you can see the colors of the neighborhood, and um, I feel like it was really important to show that unification when you see uh, bugging out in his Kente shorts and his bright yellow top. Um, You know he's representing his culture, you know, and he's asking Sal, who is in the pizzeria, and, um, you know, it does feel very Italian. We had heavy green, and we had um, John Turturro in like a tank top, And we were constantly, like, sweating them up to show the heat. So it it was a vibrant, um, surrealistic protest film. And I think that's why it's standing the test of time, because it still feels and looks uh, relevant, especially the storyline. How did you sweat up? John
5: DeTuro, and do the right thing?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Spike was always yelling out for sweat, you know, because he wanted to really show how hot the summer was. And uh, John uh, wanted to wear, you know, the sleeveless tank. And uh, we just had glycerin and water in a spray bottle And we were responsible for sweating up his uh, garment and then makeup sweated his face and and arms. But it was a constant process, even when it got late in the summer and the weather was changing and it actually got cold and we were shooting some of those same scenes. Uh, And so the actors were like, you know, don't come near me with that water bottle.
5: These films, School Days, do the right thing, we're the beginning of a long journey working with Spike Lee. Do you think your career and his career would have been the same without each other?
2: I often thought Spike and I both cared about our community um, deeply. We cared about our history deeply. You know, there's such a shorthand that happens when You are speaking with someone who laughs, you know, at what you laugh at, who understands what they're looking at when you show them uh, your ideas. There's a wonderful uh, connection to culture and to the desire to show our community and, and represent each other in a way that we have experienced but we haven't seen. And so, as far as our careers, you know, having a, a companionship in that way that we enhanced each other, um, I, I don't think that I would be the same uh, filmmaker um, without the experiences that I had with Spike. Mm-hmm. And that that run of films um, shaped who... I am today. I don't know what it did for Spike, but I know what it did for me. <laughs> we have to ask him. He's got to speak on this at some point.
5: <laughs> he probably has already. Ruth E. Carter, thank you so much for this conversation.
2: Thank you.
0: Ruth Carter has been nominated for the Academy Award for Costume Design for the Black Panther sequel, Wakanda Forever. Her book, The Art of Ruth E. Carter, which includes her thoughts and illustrations on many of her films, will be available in May. She spoke with our guest interviewer, Tanya Mosley, host of the podcast Truth Be Told. You can see some of Ruth Carter's sketches on our website, freshair.npr.org. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. For Terry Gross, I'm Dave Davies.